Get a Bible, if you will. I hope you brought one. Um, and try to find, uh, in six seconds, First Chronicles 21. Go. First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. So we're in First Chronicles, chapter twenty-one. While you're looking, um, let me mention- now we're over to First Chronicles, chapter twenty-one. Gang, First um, Chronicles twenty-one is a story. Uh, it's a story out of the life of David. It uh, it covers the whole chapter, but the chapter's pretty long. Uh, it's a story that takes place in in the better part of a year. And this is just the synopsis of the story. I'm going to, because it's so long, um, I'm only going to read you half of it this morning, but we're going to look at the whole thing in the coming weeks. So you follow as I read uh, out of a book that's inerrant, it's infallible, it's inspired, it's the very mind of God as black words on a white page. And I'm going to begin reading it in verse one of chapter 21. It reads like this. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my Lord the king? All of them my Lord's servants? Why then should, we, should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. In all Israel, there was was 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering. For the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will. Either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man." So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornon, Ornon, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. 
but do not let the plague be on your people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, I am, um, I am drawn to this story. Um, I, I, I suppose that part of its attraction to me is that I see myself in it. There's a certain autobiographical dimension to this story, at least for me. Um, it's a story that has numerous little sub-lessons in it, um, but it has one major one, one main lesson um, that kind of the plot line of the whole story and I and I want to tell you what it is now so that as we go through the story perhaps the story can benefit us even more here is the the moral of the story of the census that David ordered it can be summarized in four words pride goeth before destruction You've heard that before, I bet. It is a proverb. It's found in Proverbs 16, I think verse 18. And we all, we all know how true it is. But some of us, it appears, either forget the lesson or perhaps even willfully ignore it. But either way, it is to our peril to do so. Now, guys, you will notice um, in the text that the story begins with the word then. Remember, see it? Actually, your, your, um, your translation may have the word and, but either word, both words do the same thing. And that is that these words connect this story with the, the, um, the issues that uh, immediately precede it. So that opening word connects the story with what, we've, what comes in the chapters before 21. So if you see the then, then you want to know, well, what is the when? If it's then, the when is, the then is when. Well, let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> Notice uh, in chapter 18, um, right before verse 1, at least in my translation, there's this bold black four words above the, the opening of 18. And it says, David defeats his enemies. That is, this is introducing a section where you're going to find about David killing all his enemies. Uh, you go to chapter 19 and right above verse 10, you notice that the Ammonites and the Syrians were defeated. Two of uh, the age-old enemies of Israel have been defeated. And then you go to chapter 20, and you remember the name Goliath, don't you? David slew Goliath with the slingshot and all that business. Well, it appears that Goliath had some brothers, and the brothers had some more relatives. But we're told in chapter 20, um, in verse 8, that these were descended from the giants to, in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So you've got um, David defeating all his enemies, the Ammonites and the Syrians, and now all of these Philistine giants are killed. And if you'll notice in chapter 14, the last verse of 14, it says, and the fame of David went out unto all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all the nations. 
wow, what a, what a great spot to be in if you're David, isn't it? Man, all of your enemies are conquered. Uh, I mean, all of those, uh, the, those ancient foes of Israel after centuries of conflict had finally been defeated by David and his armies. And then, of course, eliminating those giants is something that uh, was certainly a positive for, for David. <clears throat> but in addition to that, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to notice in, in chapter 18, verse 11, it says, um, These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and the gold that he had carried off from all the nations, from Edom, Moab, Ammonites, and the Philistines, and Amalek. Oh, not only has David defeated all his enemies, but every time he did, he gathered up all the gold and all of the silver, and he brought it over to Jerusalem, you know, and dedicated it to the Lord. So, so David not only is enjoying victory over his enemies, he's enjoying the fact that they have uh, stockpiled lots of silver and lots of gold. And, and can I read you this just one more time? Um, and the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all the nations. My, my. Imagine that. Victory over your enemies, wealth, and fame. Well, that tells you of the then. Then when? Well, when David was experiencing victory and wealth and fame, that's the then. David was intoxicated with his own success, all granted to him by God. But apparently, um, David was more occupied with the gifts than with the giver. And oh that, oh, that someone would have come to David and said, David, you know about this principle. You know about this age-old adage that your son is going to write and put it in the book of Proverbs. <laughs> David, if, if someone would have just said, David, don't forget, pride goeth before destruction. So here he is, intoxicated with his own success. And here comes the destruction. Guys, let me show you just one other thing. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Hey guys, does that ring a bell? It ought to. It's almost identical language that is found in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. Um, same, same language that you get right there. And do you know what story is in 2 Samuel 11? Yeah. Bathsheba. Um, guys, it's, it's hard to pinpoint an exact time.
timeline with all of this. But just using the sheer sequence of the text, I think it's safe to suggest that this census episode of 1 Chronicles 21 happens after the Bathsheba debacle. Guys, wouldn't you think that after the huge losses associated with Bathsheba, that David, that David would have learned his lesson? I mean, wouldn't you think that he would live the rest of his life sobered and humbled and gripped with a sense of his own sin? Yeah, he would. But it doesn't work like that, does it? A period of great pain and suffering humbles us. We draw closer to God for a while. But then let things return to normal, a, a, a new normal, and let peace and prosperity once again rule the day. And off we go. Folks, sin is so deceptive. The flesh is so weak. Satan is so subtle that even after learning hard lessons via pain, we must learn them again. I mean, will this battle with sin ever be over? No, not, not this side of heaven. While here, the battle rages. Peter, you know Peter, um, sweet foot-in-the-mouth Peter. Um, Peter had his own moral blowout you will recall I'm sure but Peter has a little bit of advice for us when it comes to this matter he says this be sober-minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and folks do you know when we're the most vulnerable do you know when we're the most devourable? In the midst of prosperity. When the enemies are defeated and there's plenty of wealth. And I got a little fame even. Folks, success, even, even when recognized as a gift from God, can nevertheless, I think, be twisted by us to produce this, this posture of self-exaltation. I have more than you do, and therefore I am better than you are. That's how we think. I'm worth more, so that means I'm superior, and you're inferior. 
Gang, do you know what flourishes in the sunshine? Flowers. But do you know what else flourishes in the sunshine? Weeds. Loss is a whole lot safer. It's more painful. But it's a whole lot more sa- it's a whole lot safer for the soul. So what careful and diligent and ongoing watchfulness is needed for our souls. In the, in the language of Peter, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Somebody said this, guys, it wasn't me. But he said, the fuller the cup, the steadier the hand required to hold it. So your cup is full right now. Good. Steady now. Now guys, having said all that, perhaps you can better understand why this census here in First Chronicles 21 was such a huge deal. David wanted to know the size of his army. He wanted to know their exact fighting strength. He, uh, to number them was an act that was indicative of ownership. He wanted to know the size of my army and my people and my kingdom. But go back to the text. Before we get the opportunity to delve into David's motives further, the text stops us. And then it redirects us to look at a, at a bigger issue. Look at the language. Then Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Satan stood up against Israel. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought this was about David's sin. It is. And we're going to get there. But there is a bigger sin issue than David's, folks. Israel's. That language that you find there, this stood up against, that's an expression which alludes to the posture of someone who, who rises to charge another with a crime in a court of law. Satan has a case against Israel. And a good case it is. Let me show you something, just a little bit about the case that Satan has with the nation of Israel. I'm reading to you from Psalm 12. It's a psalm that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. David wrote it too, and he says this, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of 
from among the children of man. Now guys, I want to read you some more out of Ezekiel 23. But I, I, I would recommend that you not turn there. Because the language in Ezekiel 23 is, is pretty rough. And I'm only going to read you one verse. It appears four times in this chapter, and I'll show it to you. But I'm going to skip some of the language because I'm afraid it might be awkward for some of you who have children with you. But listen to this. This is verse 27 of Ezekiel 23. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring begun in the land of Egypt. Now, folks, I'm drawing your attention not to their moral failings. I'm drawing your attention to the clause begun in the land of Egypt. He mentions that in verse 3 in Egypt. He mentions it in verse 8 that she had begun in Egypt. He mentions it in verse 19 in the land of Egypt. Do you know what you're being told here? That by the time this incident unfolds in 1 Chronicles 21, there had been a national defection. Israel started sinning way back in Egypt. So she brought all of her immoralities and all of her idolatries into the promised land with her. And by the time David is king and this incident takes place, David says, the faithful have vanished. The godly ones, they're gone. And it all started in Egypt. That horde of people that was led out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Those weren't a bunch of choir boys. Go read about it. It's pretty rough in Ezekiel 23. So there's a national defection. And Satan has a case. And God incites David so that he can bring about judgment upon the nation of Israel. Okay, wait a minute, Dr. Young. I'm, uh, I'm confused. This story is about whose sin, David's or Israel's? Both. It's about the sin of a man. It's about the sin of a nation. David and Israel are flush with their recent successes against the Ammonites and the Syrians and the sons of Gath. And in the midst of their successes, the door is open for that roaring lion. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing gives Satan so easy an approach and such a clear advantage over us as when we are swelled by a sense of our own self-importance. And so David 
without any divine authorization orders a census and ladies and gentlemen I hope you'll believe me when I say there are a few things that are so detestable to God than a heart with an inflated ego and if you won't take my word for it well then maybe you'll take this out of Proverbs chapter 8 pride and arrogance and the evil way I hate says God God has a controversy with the nation and he uses a self-inflated man a man who will have his own way he won't be deterred he uses this self-inflated man to chastise a self-inflated nation a nation that refuses to yield David's sin in this story is heinous ladies and gentlemen but you're gonna find that God is even going to use David's sin and the sin of a nation to accomplish his his purposes God leaves David to himself oh boy is that ever scary you know there's all this talk in theological circles about free will to the point that I'm somewhat tired of it but I'll tell you this if you want a free will take mine I don't want it because every time I insist on mine it produces something painful Brother and sister, there is never a time when we can take off the full armor of God. And when and if we do, even the pagans get to see how foolish we are. And we're going to see that as later in this story. David was even rebuked by Joab, his crusty old military general. But the text says, the king's word the inflated egomaniac's word prevailed so David infatuated by his own sense of success plows ahead And the destruction is just around the next corner. So is there application in this story for me? Oh, you bet there is. I told you it was autobiographical. Is there... Um, 
application in this story for you? Well, I'll have to let you make that call. But is there application in this story to our nation? (laughs) Oh, you bet there is. Why? We've got an economy that's the envy of the entire world. And God says, Come here, little virus. I got a job for you to do. Ladies and gentlemen, there is only one right response to the moral of this story. That is, pride goeth before it. There's only one right response on the part of God's people. Repentance. A repentance that leads us to pursue humility. I don't wait around on God to produce humility in me. You know, there's a statement in James 4 that says, humble yourselves. I mean, we even sing a song, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He. You know, we, we, we sing it. We see it in James 4. But if we don't pursue it, then God will orchestrate a set of circumstances to prove to us once again that he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So humble yourself. Make the phone call that you should have made some time ago. Uh, apologize to your spouse. Um, grant the forgiveness that you've been denying. Or give more generously. But brother and sister, you've got to do whatever you would do if you thought that you were being chased by a roaring lion because you are. Now that's for For us believers. But if you have not yet embraced this Savior of ours, don't start with those steps. You see, Christians do those things because they're related to God through faith in Christ, not to gain a relationship with God. So if you have not yet embraced the Savior, here's your first stop at the foot of a cross. on which the Prince of Glory died. And look at him dying in the place for sinners. 
That's where you must go first. Embracing that Savior. And then having done so, humble yourself. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, pride goeth before destruction. Our Father, would you use your word to remind us of a truth that we know to be true and yet ignore or forget? Oh God, so much of us, so much of the pain that we experience is brought on because we, we fail to heed clear instructions from your word, that being one of them. So, Lord, if, you, um, if we are in periods, if someone here is in a period of their own sense of destruction, brought on by their own sense of self-exaltation, would you cause them to see that this period that they're in is to bring them to their senses, to bring them to the place where they glory in a posture of humility. Do that for us all, Lord. Because humility is the place where you say you will grant grace. You promise to grant grace to the humble. And you also promise to resist the proud. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, so much of it because they feel like they don't need a Savior because of pride. Would you show them? that the greatest need they have now or in eternity is for Jesus Christ. Open their eyes to see him in all of his beauty. Do that for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.